Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live today from across the Mississippi River in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, where I am spending time this summer with my family and my parents. And uh, I was just sharing with our guest today, Chris Dibba, who's the vice chancellor for university advancement at East Carolina University and president of the ECU Foundation. How good it's been to have a little bit of grandparent coverage after a year on the road in the Grenobago. Welcome, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Well, uh, we're going to dive into where you all are as we sit here mid-July 2021 after a, a pretty um, trying and uh, it, you know intense year uh, on many fronts. But before we do that, I wanted to actually take a walk down memory, memory lane and learn a little bit more about the Chris Dibba, who was a junior in high school, what he was into, and uh, how that guy navigated his own college search. Yeah, thanks for uh, again, thanks for having me. And um, what a what a uh, what an interesting road we all you know go down. And uh, when we have these opportunities to talk about it, it does sort of uh, make you realize how how blessed and lucky you know so many of us are. But I'm a I'm a Louisiana native and uh, stayed at home. I did look at a few schools back in the high school days, but stayed home, went to Louisiana State University. I'm a proud LSU Tiger. And I uh, had a great experience down there. I met my wife down there, uh, lots of Louisiana roots. And, um, and so I'm always very, very, very proud to, uh, to call myself a uh, Louisiana native, but went to-, so, went to Yeah. So when you, were, when you were at Captain Shreve High School though, oh, did Captain you know Shreve. that- El did you know LSU was going to be? I mean, was that your aspirational place you wanted to be, or or, or were there other uh, yeah, other institutions so, you considered? So grew up an LSU fan, going to games and, and being a Louisiana native, wearing the LSU shirts. But I uh, tell you, I did want to go to Duke University. Uh, somewhere along the lines, family travels, whatever it may be, had a chance to walk the campus uh, at, at age ten, age twelve, something like that. And, um, and always fell in love with it. And now I'm, I'm an older guy, I graduated high school in the 80s. So that great final four run by the Duke Blue Devils um, in 86 really cemented that. But we didn't have internet back then, they used to send letters. And uh, I got the thin letter. I did not get into to Duke University for undergrad. Didn't hold it against them, uh, ended up there later in life. But uh, so I stayed at home and uh, went to LSU and, and you know, never, Never looked back. It was a great experience and um, just proud to be a Tiger, like I said. But I did ultimately become a Blue Devil. So tell me about that because you pretty, I mean, I think immediately after college, basically pursued a master's degree at Duke. Yeah, I did. I, I Right away, uh, crazy enough, I got married two days after uh, college graduation. We packed up our uh, wedding gifts and moved to Durham, North Carolina. Went to grad school at Duke. Um, had, a, had a great, uh, amazing two-year run, master's degree from there. Um, and that's actually where I got started in development and fundraising work. So just uh, very- So you studied, you studied theology. Uh, what is one or two, uh, one, or, one or two facts that we should know that you uh, uncovered? Or oh, exposed oh to that's fascinating. I'm ready for the yeah. philosophy of religion kind of discussion here. But, you know, I tell you what, um, so first of all, I'm Catholic and married. So, so when I say I went to the Divinity School, uh, I was on a two-year master's, of, sort of almost like a master's of arts track. There is a master's of, of uh, theology and uh, uh, the three-year track where uh, those who are seeking uh, appointments in the church, primarily the Methodist church, you know, they'll go through that track. And um, amazing, amazing friend. I still have lots of friends that went through that track. And I uh, had that degree with me, but I did the two-year master's, and I was seeking to be uh, the great scholar, and uh, and so glad that I, I went to Duke. Uh, the, the the level of scholarship, the uh, the faculty. There's a guy I don't know if he's still on faculty. It's been a while, but Stanley Hauerwas, uh, Dr. Hauerwas was a great great theologian, controversial, wrote uh, just volumes and volumes of work, and I just was a devotee and followed him and one of the reasons I went there. And so I just had having a chance to take a class with him and be a part of that experience. Um, if anybody has a chance to pick up any of those books, I highly recommend it. Love it. Well said. And so at this point, you know, when you were at LSU or even 
pursuing your master's, did you know that advancement or development work was a thing? When did you first get exposed to well, this world? The funniest thing is I didn't get exposure until I actually was in it. And what I mean by that is, uh, again, I get this two-year degrees. I have my master's degree from Duke. And I really wanted to go on and do PhD work. I really wanted to be the great professor, PhD from, from Duke or somewhere else. You know, and But as I said, I went straight from undergrad to master's. And I was really honestly quite exhausted. At age, uh, you know, 24, as I said earlier, I was now married. I was 24 years old. I already have two uh, degrees in higher ed, and uh, I was poor. I was tired. I just needed to get some sleep. And I went to um, went to the dean. I had been a student worker in the college, so I, I knew my way around the halls. And I went to Dennis Campbell, Dean Campbell. Uh, if anybody uh, has experiences at Duke, or, or um, I think he's a Yale grad um, along those lines. Just, just an, uh, an amazing person, uh, great mentor, great, uh, great leader. And I went to him and I just said, hey, can I have a year off before I pursue this PhD? And he said, yeah, you probably need to learn more German and you know, brush up uh, a few more things. So yes, take a year off. And then I had, uh, the next question was, well, do you have a job? Because if I'm not gonna, just, if I'm just gonna hang around here, might as well get paid and go home at five o'clock, right? And he said, I'll never forget, he said, go down the hall and go see uh, the development folks. Go see Wes Brown. I'll, I'll share names. Go see Wes Brown. So I went and knocked on his door again. I, I knew my way around the halls, but I had no idea what they did up there. And he, he said, show up on Monday and, and, and put on a pair of long pants. You can't wear shorts and a ball cap anymore. You've got a real job. Show up Monday. So I showed up Monday and I had no idea what fundraising and philanthropy and the, the level of investment uh, that are the alumni and, and, and corporations, and foundations, and so many external aid bodies give to higher ed. And I remember just being so new and getting my logins and stuff and opening mail and seeing checks and diving into the database and, and seeing all these, you know, commas and zeros and just being blown away that people, uh, first of all, that they had that capacity. Second of all, that they were so will, willingly and joyfully giving it away. And um, that really, I mean, transformative. Obviously, I've been doing this now for whatever, 25, 30 years. So it was clearly transformative. So you, you went, I mean, that is a unique level uh, of, of, or that is a unique uh, starting point relative to many of our guests who were the student caller or they did some sort of volunteerism to have that little exposure, walk in, all of a sudden, it sounds like you're, you're sort of just smacked in the face with, wow, there are lots of millionaires out there giving hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars to having an eight plus year run at Duke, which, you know, in a sector where there is a lot of turnover, I mean, spending eight years anywhere can be, can be pretty rare. So when you think about the beginning of that journey and, and just getting a handle on what this sector was to the middle and then the end, what are some of the highlights when you think about, you know, cutting your teeth at the very beginning and then maybe some of the successes that stand out during that time? Yeah, you know, that, that I appreciate that summary because it's so true. And, and just to basically sum it up to say how lucky I really was. And, you know, um, so you get, you know, you get this temp job and it should be a year, right? But it, but it clearly is foreshadowing. It goes on and on. But in that time, um, I started meeting people around campus. I'm sitting in meetings. I'm, I'm sitting with people that I instantly respect. And as I get to know them, I realize just, you know, how amazing they are, how amazing that university is, how amazing that the power of philanthropy. And I really mean that in powerful language. Uh, you know, I'll drop another name, but in that early, early days, I got to, to meet Sterling Wilder. Sterling is uh, still at Duke and, and is a, a lifer there, and she's the head of the Alumni Association there, and it's just uh, an amazing person. I hope she hears this because I want her to hear how much, uh, how much I respect for her and how grateful I am because in the early days, she said, hey, you know, uh, if, you, if you're not going to be a temp for long, come join my shop, and, and I joined the annual fund on a permanent basis, and and uh, did reunion giving there and how fun it's reunion giving and had great partners, great team there and, and getting to work with a variety of classes from, uh, from the 50th uh, reunion to the fifth reunion and just all varieties in between and, and meeting great blue devils and, and passionate alums and, and things like that. And so, yeah, I just, I am so lucky. Now I, I hope that in hindsight, 
those teammates will say I did a good job, uh, hung around long enough that I hopefully I, I, I contributed something to the life of the university. But as time progressed, I ultimately started to work in some, some major gift work, working closely in arts and sciences, wonderful dean there, wonderful teammates there. And I still have friends across the country that uh, I got to work with in Durham and, and who are now elsewhere as well. So yeah, about a seven or eight year run in all. And you also started at an interesting time and in that it was probably the dawn of uh, email, right? The dawn of the internet through the sort of dot-com 1.0 boom yeah. all the way through 9-11 and some of the subsequent you know, challenges. And so a lot happened during that relative, you know, during an eight year period from a technology perspective, societally as well. I mean, what are some of the things that stand out, you know, good or bad during that that period? No, um, you know, I remember, uh, again, credit to Sterling for, for allowing us to be innovative and, and progressive, uh, because I remember thinking, uh, you know, that we needed a website. So you're, to your point, this is the mid 90s, maybe 96, 97, by the time I have this conversation. And and, and she said, you know, basically, uh, I don't know what you're talking about, but do it. And so I buy a book, you know, an Adobe or something book, and it's got the disc in the back. You know, you can kind of picture this, right? I'm loading in all the stuff. And then I go and buy a, a, a digital camera that literally has the disc in it. If everybody listening recalls those days of like the, the one meg disc that you carried around and, you know, took god awful pictures with. But we, we created the first uh you know, annual fund giving page. Now it didn't, it didn't take uh, gifts and it didn't have all that other stuff, but we were able to put out there some, some information about our reunions and things like that. And so it really was fun, but you, you started to realize to your point, you know, and still to this day, you never really stopped doing old ways of, of soliciting and communicating, right? I mean, direct mail still is direct mail, even if you now have email and, and we here at ECU just very, very recently stopped our student calling program. Um, but, you know, how long did that go? And then you still just keep adding tools. And so it was a time of innovation, of, of adding new tools, of, of seeing really what the power of the internet, what, what that could mean and mean for philanthropy. And the idea that you would solicit and, and actually have a transaction over the internet, somebody would give you a credit card, which is mind-boggling. Well, I, I mean, I've heard stories that maybe Maybe there were even debates at times where people would say things like, well, is it even okay to, to email a prospect no, or, or should you call them instead? I mean, was that debate? Oh yeah. And every new technology. I mean, I remember going a little farther down, you know, the, it was almost taboo to call somebody on their cell phone for a while there. If they were, if they were nice enough to actually share that information, it was almost sacred. Now it's, you know, I don't have a home phone, for example. I mean, that is my right. phone. And I think that is uh, the same. But yeah, oh, absolutely. This great debate around the table of would you send out a mass solicitation by email? And is that t taboo? And is that going to uh, really land anywhere? And, you know, keep doing it. No, the, the thing I love about annual giving, and I, I've sat here with my team, and they know I'm a, a disciple to this. You know, I love the fact that it really, uh, of course, throughout the year, but definitely at the end or the beginning of each year, you assess what's worked, what hasn't worked. Should we keep doing that? Should we should we nuance that? Should we throw that away? Should we start over? Um, you know, major gifts is very different. And I, I love major gifts. I love principal giving and plan giving and all that. I do it all. But that is fun. Um, it is really, really fun to evaluate what's worked. And uh, the data speaks for itself. And you look for trends and you jettison what's not working and you and you start over with something new. I love it. So you're you're at Duke, which obviously as anybody who's listened to this can hear, you're you're deeply connected and remain passionate about the institution. It was a dream of yours from Captain Shreve High School through uh, pursuing your masters and working there. And then ultimately you made the leap to Auburn and and I'm always fascinated because it's one thing to sell a community that you've benefited from, a mission that you personally have lived, to then make the move to the first institution that is not your alma mater um, and sell that mission with as much passion and enthusiasm. And so what was it like when you got to Auburn? Was that scary? I mean, now you, you, you got to learn a 
new mascot. You got to start seeing War Eagle everywhere you go. You got to learn uh, new traditions and names and, uh, you know, places and buildings and buzzwords. What was that like after spending um, eight years plus at Duke, which you knew so, so well? Yeah, no, great question. And it, and it was a great tra transition. I got to give credit to my wife. Uh, my wife was also in development uh, at Duke. She started in research and then started doing stewardship and events and things like that. And she took a, a, a pretty lengthy uh, leave of absence from work when our son was born. And she took about a year, year and a half off. And she's the one who said, and, and for all of the listeners here who are all over the country, of course, uh, it's all relative. But she said, hey, we moved up north. And I put that in quotes because she's a New Orleans person. We, we moved up north for two years and it's now been 10, including the the, uh, the two-year master's, she said, it's time to move south. And, and um, I've written to, to Auburn. And so she being in development, she kind of initiated that and got us uh, very interested. And we both interviewed and we both were really, uh, really excited about the culture. So again, we have some SEC experience. We, we, we went to LSU. So we knew how passionate SEC fans could be. We had been to Auburn as a different Tiger, so our Auburn Tigers listening here, I had, been vis I had visited as, a, as an LSU Tiger. I knew really what, uh, what passionate folks, uh, th that alumni base was. And so, again, grateful that um, those folks took a chance on me. My wife and I started an advancement there. And it was, it was a transition. People were a little skeptical. Who's this LSU guy coming in? We had a common enemy. I I'm gonna be very uh, nice and polite throughout this hour, but you know, uh, Auburn and LSU, neither one of us like Alabama. So I guess that was allowable for me to, to come in and be a part of that team. And, you know, it, it started really well, but, but honestly, uh, I don't know if it was a year or six months, a year into it, met the Dean College of Business, and he had just come in from Syracuse. And I was a general major gift officer, and he kind of said, hey, I'm a private school guy. Uh, you're a private school guy from Duke. Uh, come on over here to the College of Business. We were fairly decentralized. And he said, uh, we can do some really fun things here. And, and so moved my office a couple blocks down the street to, to the College of Business and, and stayed there for the remainder of my time. And, and just had, uh, again, still, I still have lifelong friends. Uh, we did great things. Um, that college has continued to explode with growth and physical growth. They've named the college, you know, looking back, I'm so proud of, of what Auburn does. My mother lives in Auburn now. Uh, she had actually uh, moved while I was there. So I'm back often. I will be back and often, uh, I'm sorry, back in Auburn in a couple of weeks. I, I try to go down every summer for some time, try to catch a game. So, uh, so while I was not a graduate, um, feel very close to the community there, made a lot of good friends. And, and again, in hindsight, hope I, I uh, contributed something to the, to the long history uh, of that great university. Well, I've been fortunate to spend some time on campus and it is, uh, it is a special place. And obviously, you know, I'm always fascinated within the SEC and, and some of the other uh, institutions, but it really stands out in the SEC where the passion yeah. is really unmatched, but that hasn't always translated into donors and dollars in as consistent of a way as you might assume when you just witness that passion. So did you have a similar impression when you talk about being the private school guy and then now you're in this public school context, what were the differences or what was the level of maturation that maybe happened during your time there? Yeah, you know, I think, and, and I, you know, it's never, it's never wise to speak in broad, broad strokes, but I, I will attempt. Uh, both here at ECU as well as, as Auburn. You know, I think the public Southern universities were a little late to getting to, to the fundraising. And, and maybe they had strong alumni relations programs, they had strong fan bases and, and loyal uh, athletic supporters. And, and from a transactional standpoint of, I want tickets, I want good seating or whatever. But this idea of a true investment, a true philanthropic investment, uh, across the campus. I just feel like the, the Southern publics uh, and, and just were a little late to the game on that. And, and I don't think it actually took that long. I feel like uh, from, from the, and this is just a point of reference, has nothing to do with, with anything I maybe have done, but from the time I got there to the time I left, I feel like the culture did change. I witnessed the culture change. 
at Auburn. I've witnessed the culture changing at ECU. Uh, it doesn't turn in, in one, one annual fund campaign. It doesn't turn in even one year. But I think if you're consistently talking about it and you have your academic leaders uh, on the road, your dean's on the road, your, your chancellor, your president on the road, partnering up with your development team and, and consistently talking, I think one of the proud things I can look back and think about, looking at the honor roll uh, of the campaign while I was at Auburn, a lot of the names on that honor roll, we didn't even know who they were at the beginning. It's not like there's always your loyal, every campus has your loyal uh, folks that are, are always there for you and they'll always take your call. Uh, but I think about some of the significant gifts. I think about some of the wonderful endowments and professorships and scholarships that were established from individuals that we didn't even know who the name was at the beginning of the campus. And so I think there's a lot of uh, capacity. I think there's a lot of interest and there's a lot of people who want to give. Uh, they just don't realize that that is something we do. And I think we as a whole, as, a, as an industry have gotten much better at it. And again, sort of being a Southern public guy, I think our institutions have caught up. Well, I'd, I'd uh, you know, we often ask in advance, just, hey, are there me memorable gifts you've been a part of? And it makes me think of what you had mentioned, um, just this idea that for all of the data and the analytics and the frontline staff and the hard work that goes into it, there are still so many hidden diamonds in the rough out there. And especially in high passion communities where there maybe hasn't been one-to-one -one relationship building, they're sort of just hanging out, you know, maybe not waiting, but, but kind of waiting for somebody to really um, get to know them. And, You'd shared um, one experience you had where you took somebody who was, as you described, disengaged to making that first four-figure gift, which ultimately led to a seven-figure gift. And it's just, I'd love to hear about that specific story, but also what, I don't know, lessons that has, uh, uh, you know, ha has uh, left you with as you went beyond yeah, that specific you know, I, experience. I hope, I hope uh Everybody uh, that you work with, I hope everybody in the industry um, really, truly sticks with the sticks with the job long enough that they start to see those kind of returns that are really valuable as as individuals. You know, we always sort of sometimes get a little corny, but I get a lot of out of this uh, out of this work, uh, seeing what the power of philanthropy is. And the, the most obvious, of course, is when you see a student scholar, you see a program being built, a building being built, and that's very tangible see that but but we do get these moments where we work with individuals who who their philanthropy really starts to transform them and i did share uh that story from auburn where that individual who was disengaged and we all knew the wealth capacity but had been disengaged and, and then started to make that first gift and then got engaged with the dean made that first endowment gift and, and on and on and and to see what, what transformative literally transformative uh, his philanthropy has been across multiple sectors of the campus uh, is really is really pretty pretty special. But you know there are other stories. One other story is you know I um, I had somebody write me a, a handwritten letter. Well, how often do we get that right? A handwritten letter talking and thanking me, thanking me for basically asking them for money, and, and that's the short sum of it. But she explained how. Um, she had a lot of ups and downs in her life. I mean, you know, we all do, right? And some of these hit her a little harder than others. But um, I went to go see her, kind of a cold call. I mean, I think she was like a thousand dollar donor here and there. Um, but she hadn't been to campus in decades. She, she never thought about that being a part of her life after she graduated. I mean, she moved halfway across the country and whatnot. And, and after I visited with her and maybe had a second or third visitor or whatever, I invited her to campus. And she, and she made that, you know, made that first gift and we stewarded it well. And she got to know the dean and she made the endowment gift and, and she kept doing that. And, and, and she got to meet the students and all that. So that's a, that's a long story condensed down into 30 seconds. But the university had, she, she got, the university became part of her life. And she got to know these students and she got, and she so willingly gave her money uh, because she saw the power of that, uh, of that. And, and, and she was up, up there in her years. And I think this was a very significant and important part uh, of that portion of her life. And so she wrote me a thank you letter. And so I, I really do use that motivation sometimes. You know, it's hard to do cold calls, right? 
Uh, I mean, you're hitting a groove sometimes, but sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're really just having a fit or COVID comes and you're stuck in your in your office at home and you're not getting out. Uh, our, our work matters and you get reminded of that. Another time I'll be, I don't want to belabor, but it just shows the power. Uh, again, an Auburn story. But there was a there was a, a gentleman who very consistent for years and years and years gave scholarships to the college business. And we knew him well, no surprise there, but uh, he was up in Birmingham, a short hour and a half for two hours away from campus. And I took one of our students dollars uh, up to lunch to, to, to meet him uh, to, and to sit and visit or whatever. And we're in a, we're in a, a community, a, a, a country club community. And we're having a nice lunch. And he says, well, do you, I live like two houses away. I'd love to show you something. So the three of us went back to the house and he had scrapbooks. Years and years and years, Christmas cards and birthday cards, and ladders and stuff. And he said to her, I hope that now you're graduating, I hope you'll stay in touch. He had birth announcements. What I found out was he had maintained relationships with most, some of the scholars had, had moved on, but he maintained relationships with these people and sent them, he'd get a birth announcement, send a gift, you know, and he knew these people for years and years and years, and they were an important part of his life. And I was blown away. I had not known about that. He had scrapbooks all on his bookshelf and decades of support. That's real music. Chris, I mean, you know, the, the last two examples you shared just get me so fired up because um, in both examples, it's that human element in the relationship that is the difference between very modest to little engagement and transformational support. And in both cases, you referenced the importance of the student engagement, the yes. dean engagement, you know, not just you as the gift officer being the star of the show, but really you being the person that could architect a holistic experience. And at the same time, you know, driving a student an hour and a half to Birmingham and getting the schedules all aligned to be able to do that and just the time invested is hard work. And obviously it was worthwhile and it, and it generated significant outcomes but I think that's the area that I get so excited about when I think about a world where we can all be a FaceTime away or a Zoom link away where we're not debating, can we email donors anymore? Right now we're a link away from Birmingham, Alabama or Birmingham in the UK. It doesn't really matter at this point. How can we scale that student relationship, one-to-one -one relationship building that when you're relying on a car trip to Birmingham, you can only do a handful of times per year. I feel like that's an area of tremendous opportunity that is not, you know, that, it, that an online giving form isn't gonna fix, that we're not just gonna add some new feature to a tool, but it's how do we start orchestrating, integrating those tried and true practices in this fully digital environment um, that I feel like might be able to unlock so much potential from other folks that are out there modestly engaged or disengaged, but having the ability to do more. Yeah. I mean, aren't, aren't we all, well, I, I feel like we're all having this debate right now coming out of COVID, right? Uh, we're not even fully out of it, but we're already having the debate of, can I use Zoom uh, to do my calls? And, and uh, sort of like what we spoke earlier. Yeah. It's a new tool. It's an important tool. It's convenient. Just the other day I was able to link, a couple of volunteers who were six to eight hours apart from each other, and we were on the screen together. So it, it is a tool. It is wonderful. But I've said, you know, we got to be back in the office. We're better as a team, and you got to get on the record. And and that hard work of getting those schedules aligned, getting on there. Uh, I am a firm believer that you know if we're in a relationship business. We got to shake a hand, got to give a hug, got to sit, break bread, and eat. And, 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 and when we talk about that student engagement, I can't wait for the fall to get our alumni back. We're already talking this morning about one of our scholarship lunches um, where we, we, you know, we put the student at the table with the donors and we get all this stuff together. And uh, it, it's really, you know, those are great funds. I mean, it's funny to watch the personalities in the room. Sometimes they're very, it's very emotional. And other times it's very fun. And very, you can't do that by Zoom. I mean, you, and so, um, the same debates or what, whatever. Can I ask, you know, can I push back a little bit though? Like, why can't we do both? I mean, why can't we have, because I think there's the element of if I live within 90 minutes, 
of ECU, I'll probably show up for that scholarship dinner if it works for my schedule and I can meet the students at the table and have those experiences. But what if I live eight hours away yeah, or no, I didn't, I didn't 12 mean, hours away? I didn't mean so to how do we think about the, you know, it, it maybe not being either or, but some sort of blend so that we can still get those amazing in-person experiences going again, but also be able to connect with people wherever they are. Yeah, right. I, I do agree. And, and I didn't mean to miscommunicate. I think some of the debate I was, was having was people saying, I don't need to get on the road. Look what a successful year I did by Zoom. And I'm saying, no, uh, it really does need to be both. You, you absolutely have this tool. Look, if you need a, a quick follow-up with somebody who's on the other side of the country, um, you know, just like phone, Zoom is a very, very convenient way of doing that. And to your point, I do think there are going to be uh, additional ways to have your students engage with your alumni, have your faculty members. I think that's that's actually one of the one of the really best opportunities there because a faculty member is not going to get on the road. So right. Some some do. Right. Some do. Some will absolutely take a call if the donors in town. But how nice would it be to set up some routine, maybe a quarterly call between the chair of the department of whatever who, who holds the the uh, the ABC, you know, yes, chair of what and. So you you have you do have some additional opportunities and, and being intentional about that and uh, I sort of as a side note we were onboarding a new champ a chancellor in the middle of uh, in the middle of the pandemic and I was so grateful that I was able to do these Zoom talents because over a series of different nights based on different things I, I was able to invite the entire alumni base. It's amazing. Now, they all didn't attend, but I was able to invite the entire alumni base to come out and meet the chancellor. You can't do that physically. There's no way you're going to get them on the road right. to meet 200,000 living alum. So, right. wow, how wonderful. Yeah. I mean, we definitely took advantage of that. I love it. No, I think that's a, a, a great point. And I also think that the future of travel, uh, even when you're on the road, I'm recording this podcast via the Zoom mobile app right now because I like the camera better on my phone and, um, and I found it to be just a, you know easy way to do it. I, you know, I think even as I'm back out on the road meeting with our customers or our prospects, I'm going to have that Zoom mobile app with me. And it might mean that I'm dropping into a meeting in Wyoming while I'm catching up with you, at, you know, in person before or after, or I'll be in Chicago at a conference but still jumping on Zoom calls with my management team. And so I do think that connectivity um, will, will be enhanced even if you are on the road, you're still uh, a Zoom link away or, or, or a text away from, um, from the whole world at this point. Yeah, you're never really out of the office if you have a phone. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, unless you're on a plane where the Wi-Fi is still bad enough that you've got some, uh, you know, some, uh, I guess, reprieve. Um, so let's just talk a little bit. You know, you talked about deep experience at Duke, private, something that you had lived yourself, great run at Auburn. And then you made a move uh, back closer to home um, in New Orleans, working at Tulane, which is an incredible institution. What was your experience uh, like there? What are some of your memories from that time? Yeah, no, that was, uh, that was an incredibly special uh, opportunity. And, and I tell you, maybe besides my first day at Duke, um, that was probably the time where I learned the most. Um, my thinking changed uh, on things. And what I mean by that is we, uh, I was able to, to go back post-Katrina. And I don't mean in the day, literally the days after. It was a couple of years after. And, and uh, by the time you get to a couple of years after a, a major event like that, the, the, the story's moved on right? The, the headlines are gone. You know, there's no water in the streets or things like that. But it is a very uh, beaten down city and a very beaten down campus. And the budget uh, had been decimated. Enrollment had been decimated. The physical campus was damaged, you know, on and on and on. But there was an incredible leader, President uh, Scott Cowell, um, who, who brought that university through and, and really what he, the, the learning for me was that this institution of higher ed is about the community. 
And as much as I love Duke, and as much as I love Auburn, uh, I never thought about what it really meant to the community. Now, I think, I think Duke in the years since has been incredibly intricately linked with, with Durham, North Carolina, with the Triangle of North Carolina. But when I was there, at least my perception was, was, was really about the community. So now I come back and, and Tulane is, is all about survival, but it was all about the preservation and the rebuilding of New Orleans. And uh, we would have, we would sit in meetings and we'd be talking about New Orleans, not campus. We wouldn't be talking about Tulane, we'd be talking about New Orleans. And that started at the top and the board of, board of trustees and our president were all about uh, bringing New Orleans back. And so now all of a sudden I feel like I'm on the road or I'm engaging alumni talking about investing. And I'm talking about investing in, in what it will mean for, for the city that we love, New Orleans. And uh, the, the ivory tower or the walls came crumbling down. Um, and and the, so much compliment, compliment to the university. I do believe, I will go on record to say that Tulane brought New Orleans back. Um, maybe the federal government had a part of it. Maybe state government had a part of it. Maybe local government had a part of it. I'm sure they did. In my eyes, Tulane brought New Orleans back. And I feel right. like I got to be a part of it and witness it. Tell me more about why you feel that way. What are some of the before and after, those pivotal moments where if Tulane hadn't done this, if we hadn't had those conversations, it would have held us back from that recovery? Yeah, so so first and foremost, uh, like the rest of the city, Tulane closed. You know, days after the storm, water in the streets, they, they closed. And they told all the students, you know, go home, go to other universities, but please come back. We will open in January, you know, so the next semester. Um, and so everybody left. And so you had a city of more than a million people and they were all gone. And so what happens is the schools, and I'm talking about the city now, uh, there's no schools. There's no grocery stores, there's no hospitals, no community clinics, there's no, there's no basic service. And so the university says, we are opening in January. And so some of it selfishly, they said, well, we've got to have medical clinics. We've got to have grocery stores. We've got to have the power grid on. We've got to have schools. We've got to have K through 12 schools. And so uh, the university got very involved in, in, in public education in the city, for example, uh, opening charter schools. And get, I mean, so they started to look at the infrastructure of the city and say, what can we push out to get this stuff going? Obviously, healthcare. And, and Tulane already has a healthcare system with, with uh, a hospital, uh, with a medical school, and all those great programs. Uh, but they, they became the, the leader. And, and, health, and they were opening clinics and, and abandoning storefronts. Hang of signs is Tulane Health Club, you know, because uh, the hospitals were all closed. There was no hospital in New Orleans uh, that was open at the time. And stuff. So, uh, so now they start to attract a student who is about service learning. And so, that, that, so now you got students coming from all over the country that want to be a part of this change and, and very focused on. And so Tulane very quickly got to be known for service learning programs and things like that and, and on and on but uh, the, the wall came down uh, if you look at uh, admissions promotional material before the storm really didn't talk about New Orleans much uh, after that it fully embraced and, and to this day you know Tulane and New Orleans are, are one and, and that's a private school and uh, so it's uh, not not part of the necessary natural fabric but a lot of people go to school there and then they stay there I love that, uh, and I hadn't been exposed to that actually, and uh, and and really appreciate the insight. I know you worked with uh, Jenny Wise while you were there, and I know Jenny is a very respected leader in the space. But any any memories there? Yeah, Jenny and I did, and still talk, and, and Jenny's awesome. And it was great. We had a we had a boss named uh, Ed Jones, and Ed had sort of climbed through the ranks and, and been a Tulanean for, for years. And, and Jenny and I both had roots in New Orleans in the area. But we had gone off. She was she was uh, up in the Northeast, and, and I was at Auburn, and so it was really special. We both we both came back. We both started on the same day. Uh, we were both colleagues, and and, uh, and navigating that. And she had her set of responsibilities, and I had mine. And uh, hopefully, we complimented each other. But she's an amazing person, and I learned a, a ton from her. Learned a ton from from Ed Jones, uh, and, and just another example of the kind of people you meet along the way who make you a better person. But ultimately had the opportunity to assume the leadership role that you're in now 
at East Carolina. Would love to know um, just sort of what led to, to that decision. How did you hear about the opportunity? Um, and what are you excited about as you look forward here today? Yeah, you know, I, I'm thrilled to be here. I was having a great time uh, in New Orleans and great time working with Jenny Wise and, and others at Tulane and uh, ECU called. And um, I was interested because it was North Carolina, loved the state. And as we already know, I've already said, I, I'd spent 10 years up here. Didn't know as much about the eastern side of the state. Um, but the chair of the search committee, uh, I was honored. The chair of the search committee got on a plane flew down to New Orleans and said, I'm spending the day with you and I'm convincing you to, uh, to apply. And so that, uh, that really, uh, that was honored and complimented by, by that and, and took his call. And, um, of course, uh, then came to campus. And when I came to campus, I had a chance to sit with then, then Chancellor Ballard, who, who's still on faculty here. He's no longer a chancellor, but he's, he's on faculty and I see him often. But I was hearing something, maybe I was listening for it, but what I was hearing was Chancellor was very passionate about the region and about what this university meant to the citizens of North Carolina and the region. And, and, and he talked about the challenges of rural America. Because now I'm going to a very different place. I mean, I, I'm in New Orleans and, 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 and Tulane and all, and now I am talking to, uh, to this Chancellor about rural America and the health disparities and the educational disparities the economic disparities and those cha challenges in Eastern North Carolina that uh, that we obviously have here, but that can be uh, documented in, in every state of our country and what's what what's the real challenges. And he talked the entire evening about uh, he didn't really brag about his university. He was he bragged about what we meant for the region. And so I'm sitting there and I'm having this wonderful evening and I'm hearing again what I learned at, at Tulane. And what we can be and should be, uh, not just for our insulated world on campus, but for the region. And uh, I was so pleased with his passion and his uh, documented efforts uh, to, to be a, a, a citizen of the region, try to transform the region and things like that, that said, sign me up. And, and now it's probably seven and a half years. Um, been here a great, great time. Uh, we've, we've had some challenges challenges with chancellor turnover and the politics in the state of North Carolina. And we've had just had, we've had some of those issues, but uh, we've got a great chancellor now who's been onboarded. He is uh, a citizen native of Greenville, North Carolina. And, um, and even after seven and a half years, I couldn't be more excited about what the future holds. And, and we're going to go public in a campaign. And we're going to just, the, the list goes on and on about what we can accomplish and what we're going to accomplish. So at the same time, we had asked you, uh, we love asking where are we over-investing? And you said nowhere because you guys have run pretty lean uh, and, and had to punch above the weight class and just sort of what's it been like and, and how do you anticipate that evolving as you ramp toward a public campaign? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. We have, uh, we have not had a lot of investments state dollars in, in advancement in our investment efforts here. Doesn't mean that the university hasn't been generous, but as we've grown, that investment hasn't kept up with that. Now I'm really grateful that we have the ECU Foundation, we have the Medical Health Sciences Foundation. We have these other bodies that have earnings coming off their endowment and things like that. Uh, that is helps supplement that. Uh, but but boy I can come up with a much longer list of technologies, of individuals, uh, of, of uh, stewardship plans, and just on and on where we could have greater investment. Now, I'm never going to let that be an excuse for, for, for not fulfilling our mission. Um, and the chancellor knows that. I, I go in there and I, and I did it at the start of this fiscal year and went in with my wish list. And, and I, hope, uh, I hope we get it or I hope we get happy. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, um, we are a public university that uh, tries first and foremost to remain affordable to uh, the citizens of North Carolina uh, and to those students who, who want to come to North Carolina and be a, be a pirate. So affordability and accessibility is, is, is key. Um, that is, uh, that's our philosophy and that's the philosophy of the entire University of North Carolina system. Um, and then from there, 
you know, how much you can spend off of an endowment. We don't have billions. Uh, we're going to get billions. We're going to get there. But in the meantime, we've had great growth in our endowment. But, um, you know, we're, we're, we're just, we're trying to, to keep up and, and try to, to be the best we can be. But we are not the richest institution uh, out there. Thank you for sharing. Uh, one kind of last question. Tell me just a little bit about the greatest plan giving officer on earth. Ah, you teed that up well. I, I, no, I do not want your listeners to call and recruit and steal this guy away. But we've got a guy, Greg Abimus. He is a, a native of the area. He is uh, my close uh, business partner here in advancement. And he honestly is the greatest plan giving officer I've ever met. And that is nothing against the colleagues I've worked with in the past. Uh, but, but Greg, first of all, Greg, Greg approaches his plan giving work uh, as a frontline fundraiser. Uh, and so he makes cold calls. He, I mean, he does discovery call. He, he has a full travel schedule. He is out uh, visiting and soliciting. And obviously his part of the database is a little different, but he is actively engaging and not just passively receiving, uh, you know, we'll send out mailers and stuff. Um, but he has a demeanor, uh, a way about him that you genuinely just want to clear your calendar and spend time with Greg. And he's got, uh, well, I would say patience is probably the wrong word because patience sounds like it's a chore. Uh, he loves to get on the road and visit with our alumni. And, and get to know them, get to know their families. And he can switch so amazingly between a professional conversation with a legal team or a financial advisor, and then, and then switch on a dime and spend an afternoon with family in the most uh, authentic ways. And uh, people love Greg, I love Greg, and uh, people have made incredible investments in our university. Uh, because of Greg. Uh, now, he's got a great product. We love our university, but the Greg's an, uh, an incredible individual. And um, along that path of meeting people, I try, to, uh, I try to be a little bit like Greg every single day. Is plan giving one of those areas where you see untapped potential in the space? Um, you know, uh, could there be two or three or four Greg's at your institution? Is there a capacity for that or, there, or how do you see is. the plan giving space evolving so we do have a couple of gregs uh greg is our leader in that effort but uh so so i tell you what what we've got at ecu and i don't think it's any different than, than any other institution but ecu does not have a lot we have some but we do not have a lot of um, fortune 500 ceos right we've got a lot of nurses accountants teachers and hardworking uh, individuals who, who love our institution, but they are not, they're unable, they're in, they don't have the capacity to just write you that million dollar check, right? Uh, they love us, but at a certain stage in life, I can think of so many examples of that nurse or that teacher who's giving you a hundred dollars a year and they show up and, and they come to that event and they went, uh, but if you were to talk to them about a six figure gift, they would just, they would be dumbfounded because they just couldn't imagine how that's possible. But if you sit and talk to them, they'll realize that maybe they want to give you a third of their estate or some formula about that. And if you sit and talk to them about how you can structure those things and do that, all of a sudden, maybe a six-figure gift is possible and they would never have dreamed it. Mm -hmm. um, that's the kind of conversations we have. And so we're seeing remarkable commitments from folks who are, who are, who are not Fortune 500 CEOs. And, uh, and that's what's been pretty special here. You see, we've got a, a really deep uh, and robust pipeline of expected gifts. And I know that's almost sort of a weird way to put it, uh, but these people have, are excited about the investment at ECU. And, and uh, we've got literally hundreds of millions of dollars in expected uh, gifts coming. I love we had it. I'm going to 10 seconds. We Please, had a yeah. teacher, uh, here in Greenville. She was an adjunct faculty member, but she was a teacher in the community. And um, she, she, she never had children. And she, uh, as a hobby, she loved the stock. She actually was quite brilliant and 
She had a little bit of a following in the community and people and she was giving some advice and stuff. But she passed away. And part of the remarkable year that we just had from the fundraiser standpoint is she left over $5 million to ECU for our music program. And it's all in scholarship. And this was from a teacher. Wow. And um, she left She left her entire state, 100% to us. And uh, that's that's remarkable. And, and what's great and what I love about our plan giving program is that we want to know about that because we want to steward those individuals while we can. Okay, we're not going to get your, your, your gift tangibly until you pass, uh, but we can steward you now. We want you to get to know our students. You can come to that uh, luncheon with the chancellor. You can, you can, you know, do so many things on the life of campus. And we do a good job of that here at ECU. I'm very proud of our program. I love it. Chris, thank you so much for sharing your journey. And uh, you're a passionate, enthusiastic leader. And I think the, um, the, the breadth of experience from the private alma mater to public, to private, the community impact that you see in New Orleans and Greenville, uh, really powerful stuff. And I, um, I guess I would just say for those of uh, our audience who are listening and want to stay in touch, what's the best way to do that? I know you're active on LinkedIn. Uh, is that the best place or is there I'm something else you'd on, recommend? On LinkedIn and I, and I attend uh, the AGB conference and I do various things. But listen, if anybody wants to connect, um, talk shop and just get to know each other. I have a very simple email. I insisted on it when I got here. No, no extra letters and numbers. Uh, it's just my last name, and you'll see it on, the, on I'm sure, on your website. It was DYBA, just my last name, at ecu.edu. No and I will no say, answer. I will say, having done thousands of calls with hundreds of advancement leaders, Chris is one of the few leaders who uh, his team refer to him by the last name. So he goes by Diva with the team as well. Absolutely. So I insisted on that. There's too many Chris's in the world uh, and, and going into these meetings. So I was like, all right, call me Dibba. All right. I love it. Well, with that, Dibba, thank you for joining us uh, and really would encourage anybody uh, to, to reach out uh, to, to Chris. He'll be uh, responsive and a great um, person in your, in your professional network. So with that, I'm going to wrap today's show from here in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. Uh, and Chris, I'll look forward to seeing you at the AGB conference in Orlando, which I just had the calendar invite hit my box uh, today, uh, if not sooner. So be well. I'll see you there. Brent signing off. Thank you. Take Thank care. You.